I'll be back. Back to the bin. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is episode 99 and three eighths. <laughs> Joining me as always is my good friend Paul Spataro and my name is Scott Gardner. How you doing? I'm doing all right, man. How are you? Doing pretty good. I'm just happy to get back and talk some comics again. Me too. Me too. I can't wait till the uh, the new episodes start going up because as we record this, it's been this this giant gap in between episodes but uh by the time the listeners are hearing this we'll you know hopefully knock on wood everything will be good and we'll be back to putting a show out on a on a weekly basis because my intent is to uh you know get the first of our of our backlog of episodes up you know in this very first week of uh of january 2013 so we're starting the year off right so but I think we talked about all that last time around, made our excuses for the the absence and all that sort of thing. So we'll go ahead and dive right in. We're going to go ahead and cover uh, feedback right off the bat. So, Paul, you got the first letter, right? I do, and it's it's an old one. It's from August, and it's uh, from our, our good friend Andy Leyland. Oh, good. This will shut him up. I mean, uh, it's nice to hear from Andy. <laughs> Anything we could do now, now that he's a regular on the uh, Two True Freaks <laughs> Network, we got to uh, be careful. He, he may end up becoming like the, uh, you know, the number one draw. I think he but already he, is the number one draw. <laughs> Bastard. Yeah, well, and we, we still, you know, just the same way we have our issues with getting uh, getting together for this, we got to get together with him and do our uh, second uh, James Bond episode. Yes, but in any event, yes, we do. Yes, we. You, you are absolutely right. As a matter of fact, uh, was in Target not long ago, and I saw the uh, the two. It's weird because they're probably my two favorite Bond movies. Yet I don't own either one of them, it, which is uh, Living Daylights and uh, and License to Kill. But I saw them on one of those like cheapy end caps for. I want to say they were like five bucks or something. So I'm going to see about picking those up just so that. I, for one, so that I have them, because I really, like I say, I really like those movies, but also, you know, so that I can uh, sit down and rewatch them again in preparation for that episode. So, I, you know, I want to rewatch those, and then I wouldn't mind, if I have time, rewatching uh, Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, even though I've seen those a good number of times as well. But it's going to be a strange show, because I really want to get into that and, and really talk about, you know, those first two Dalton movies, but then... However long the episode goes, I don't have a thing to say until we get to Daniel Craig, you know, because I just, I, I haven't seen those, uh, what's his the face? Yeah, and just have no, absolutely zero interest in them. Well, so. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't give up, and I won't give up anything in advance and tell you what I think of them, because I'll save it for the episode when we do it, but, uh. I've seen everything. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, it was just a weird thing with that, though. I had been by Target uh, like a week before Skyfall came out. Mm-hmm. And I was I saw Skyfall with my son and my nephew. So there were three of us going. And when I was in Target, they had the James, James Bond virtually every movie for $10 each on Blu-ray. Wow. And, and if you bought it, there was a, a coupon on it with a coupon code. And you could go online and redeem the coupon code. And for that code, 
you got $10 off your ticket to Skyfall. Wow. So it was $10 for the three movies for $10, but since I was going to the movies anyway to see Skyfall, basically it was three Blu-rays for free. So hmm. that was a pretty good deal. That is a good deal. But anyway, back to our friend Andy and his <laughs> letter. Andy writes, Dear Binners, First, hmm. that, that Bill bloke was the mutt's nut. Bring him back again. I guess he's talking about Bill Robinson. I don't know what the mutt's nut is. <laughs> I think that's a play on his... Uh, oh, the... Uh, the dog's bollocks there. Yeah, that's right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> listened with interest to the discussion of John Romita Jr. on the last show. Now, I think John Jr. is, pound for pound, the best, most solid, pure superhero artist currently working, but there is a very definite looseness to his art over the last few years. When he started, John Jr. was a clone of his dad. Not that there's anything wrong with being a clone of one of the best draftsmen in comics, but this gave his art little dynamism of its own. Sure, his Iron Man and Spider-Man work was excellent, but there is identifiably more latent in the Iron Man stuff than Romita Jr. On Spider-Man with Roger Stern, he began to become his own man, helped immeasurably by a string of different inkers, all of whom helped him refine, his, refine and hone his art. Look at the issue inked by Klaus Jan and Green, mouthwatering stuff. He moved over to X-Men, and his style became a lot looser. This was still good stuff, my era of X-Men is the Paul Smith, John Jr. era, but there seemed to be less to it than in the Spider-Man days, and he carried this over to Daredevil and Man Without Fear. I do agree that he became a little more like Frank Miller here, but less rough than Miller's stuff, less abstract, less abstract with not as much use of negative space. After DD, after DD is where the art started to really develop and to become a lot more inconsistent. Thor with Dan Jurgens is excellent. The last Fantastic Four story, not so much. He became much better at huge figures hitting each other. World War Hulk is great, but less adept at real people. His Spider-Man suddenly had spindly legs and skinny necks, and his Mary Jane was simply awful. His inconsistency is only really irritating when it's within the same book rather than from project to project. Just by chance, I was boxing Spider-Man comics today, and I happened to cross Peter Parker, Spider-Man 81. It has a frankly awesome splash page, but on page 2, Spidey has spindly ankles, only to be excellent again on page 19. It's this inconsistency that drives me buggy. Now, Andy goes on to give us several links to uh, different examples of J.R. Jr.'s artwork, showing us what he does like and what he doesn't like. And uh, I, we, we could look at those, but uh, I think it's probably best that we just kind of skip over those because whoever's listening isn't going to have the luxury of seeing what we're talking about. But uh, rest assured, Andy, I did look at all of them, and I pretty much agree with your uh, your statements on all of it. But uh, I, to me, Andy kind of covers it with J.R. Jr. I agree with pretty much everything he said there. Uh, I, I think some of the World War Hulk work though that Andy said was great some of it seemed a little rushed to me as well did did you read World War Hulk Scott 
I haven't read it. I've seen a lot of stuff from it. Um, but no, I, as far as, you know, sitting down and reading the, the whole series proper, no, I, I never did. And I, I have to admit a large part of it was because of the art, but also, um, that particular storyline just held really very little interest for me at all. I, I just, I, it didn't really grab me. Um, you know, I've been very, uh, I know I've been very critical of John Romita Jr., you know, of, of latter-day John Romita Jr. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I still feel justified in that criticism. I just like the guy's older stuff better. But, you know, Andy hit upon one point that, you know, it's a perfectly valid statement when he said that, you know, like his Iron Man work um, was shorn up by Bob Layton. That's absolutely true. As I've gone back through that stuff and re-examined it over the years, I think a lot of what I see in there that I really love and really like and look at and go, God, why doesn't he draw like this anymore, is because so much of it is Leighton and not him. Um, so I, I think that that was actually a, a very you know astute observation. Um, I mean, I don't dislike Ramita Jr. It's just... He, he's just one of those guys where I look at him and I think that some of the influences that he adopted um, weren't necessarily beneficial to his particular art style. I, I, thought, I think that he used to have a very, um, I guess what you would call like a classic comic book art style, almost... Almost kind of like the Marvel House style of the of the period, you know, the, the how to draw Mar- you know comics the Marvel way type mm-hmm. of style. And over time, he's kind of gone the Frank Miller route, where he's, you know, kind of gone off and done his own thing. And in his particular case, I don't think that served him well. But again, that's just my opinion. I'm just not a big fan of you know uh, of that sketchy angular style and. It just I somewhere along the line he just lost me. But what's funny is I know exactly where it was, which was that Daredevil Man Without Fear miniseries. That was the first time I looked at him and thought, "Ew, you know what? What happened?" And unfortunately, well, that was definitely he, when he started aping Miller. Right, exactly. And and unfortunately, it's like he just never really recovered. Like he looked at it and said, "Hey, I like this," and and decided to stick with that style and i just consider it kind of a shame because i i just personally i don't like that style i think there's already too many artists that draw in that very loosey-goosey um just you know it's hard to describe it other than scratchy and it's not so much blocky because i that's my criticism for kirby's i think kirby's blocky so it's not so much blocky as it's very um you know, a lot of straight lines. And, See, I, I, that's funny because because in my mind I did consider it to be blocky. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I I did see that and, and the sketchiness of it, and I don't like the sketchiness either. You and I are in agreement on that. But his sketchiness doesn't bother me as much as his blockiness does mm-hmm. because it seems like his figures don't have that fluidity to them, right? Because of the blockiness. And and the right. sketchiness, you know, kind of go to whoever's inking him. I, I've I've gone to giving credit and or blame uh, a lot more to inkers in the last few years than I previously had. So, 
you know, I think we talked about that last time when we were talking about uh, what's the name, Lino U or Lino U, however it's pronounced. Right. And and how I can see the quality of the work underneath the sketchiness. Uh, and I think if you gave him a strong inker who wouldn't leave the sketchiness in the final product, I think his work would be great. Maybe that's maybe that's ultimately what's going on with guys like him. Because Lionel Yu is another one. I think that their styles are actually very similar to each other. So maybe that's ultimately what's happening is that either because they're enamored of the pencilers are or they're being you know told you know leave it alone and only lightly ink it something they're not you know quote unquote doing their job as far as finishing the art you know so it it maintains that kind of sketchy scratchy look because it hasn't truly been finished it, does that mm-hmm. make any sense that's that's exactly my thoughts. That it's 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 almost unfinished. It's almost as if they're printing it directly from the pencils, right? And and it, especially if you're going to have a sketchy penciling style, you need a strong inker, right? There's very I, in my quick recollection, I think there's only a, a very few uh, comic artists that have ever been where you could take their work directly from the pencils and publish it and and have it be you know, really something, you know, nine times out of 10, it ends up looking like this, where it just, you look at it and just go, something's not right here. They didn't finish this. It looks like a rush job or something. So the first issue I remember them doing that with was an issue of Captain America with John Byrne. It was an anniversary issue and they kind of redid the origin in it. Mm -hmm. And I think they were going for a little bit of a golden age look there. And that was the whole reason that they went for the uninked pencils. Right. But that, that actually played very well, I thought. Uh, I and, remember... And of, of late... I'm sorry? I was just going to say, I remember they did uh, DC when they did that uh, that miniseries, the very first Nathaniel Dusk miniseries by Gene Cullen. That book is uninked. They actually did it straight from pencils. And combined with the kind of like watercolory style of, of the coloring in that, it actually worked very well to give it... Uh, a very distinct look you know, because they were going for that whole, uh, you know, grim gr- or not grim and gritty, but kind of gritty crime noir type of you know, type mm-hmm. of story you know, from the thirties. And it actually lent very well to that, you know, that interpretation, but that's something that, you know, again, was distinctive to that particular book. It's not something that you'd want to do all the time or see all the time because it does look, you know, it looks like what it is. It looks unfinished. And 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 Gene Colan was an artist who had a very finished pencil style. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if you've seen any of his his uninked artwork, it really is just a matter of tracing over the lines for the inker. They're not right. really finishing it so much as just kind of, you know, making it more solid. Right. You know, but other other artists, you know, require a little bit more of a clean up or or a finishing style, and and you know, J.R. Junior. I think is one of them. And and you know, although Klaus Janssen is a very strong inker, I think his he has such a strong inking style that you have to put him with the right guy. And while I think he's become J.R. Junior.'s favorite inker over the years, I don't know that they're a perfect matchup for the style of art that you and I are looking for. They're too similar. I think that's part of the problem is when you get, you know, sometimes 
a penciler and an inker who have very similar styles work well together and they complement each other, then other times you get them where they're too similar to each other. And when you start off with a particular look that may not be aesthetically pleasing, then all it does is it brings out that unpleasantness that much more. Because Klaus Jansen, to me, is is one of those inkers that I seldom like what I see from him. It's not that he's bad. It's just, again, it's that very, you know, a lot of straight lines, very angular, somewhat blocky, very stiff look. And, I mean, I've seen him ink artists that, are the complete opposite of that style. And then he'll ink them and make their work unappealing because of, of again, the stiffness of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you've got someone that, that starts out that way to begin with, like Ramita Jr., I think he, it's just, it's not doing him any favors. I think he's much better teamed up with somebody like a Bob Layton that's going to kind of round it out and bring a, a slightly more classic style to it but i don't know that's just me i mean as a child of you know classic 80s comics that's just the style that still appeals to me the best i know to a lot of uh you know new fans they'll look at that style and it looks old and fuddy-duddy to them which blows my mind but it does i guess i guess it would look as old to them as you know when we when we were coming up looking back at you know early silver age and, and golden age artwork, we'd look at it and go, nah, you know, it's not really my thing. I want to see something more like Neil Adams and John Byrne and George Perez, you know, and now today, mm-hmm. you know, the younger fans look at that art style and think, ah, that's old stuff. You know, I want to see the, the flashy new stuff that's, that's out there. So I don't know. And I think that Ramita Jr. kind of straddles that line between both of those worlds. Yeah, I would agree with that. Was that the the end of Andy's? Uh, well, with the, the exception of the, of the links that he gave, that again just wouldn't be worth going into on the air. Cool. Well, we got another one here, and this one's simply entitled "Back to the Bins Number Ninety Seven. It's and only two episodes ago. <laughs> says, Dear Scott, Mike, and Paul, says, just wanted to thank you guys for another enjoyable episode of what is quickly becoming my favorite part of the Two True Freaks uh, podcasting network, Back to the Bins. He says, each Woo-hoo. episode... <laughs> yeah, I know. That's high praise. He says, I'm, each episode... I'm taking it that way. <laughs> each episode features some very intelligent discussion on comics that I can rarely hear anywhere else, in this episode especially, uh, so considering one of the topics that came up uh, regarding Mike's review. That's right, I'm talking about Rob Liefeld, one of the most polarizing figures in the comic book industry. Says most podcasts slash forums just say Liefeld sucks or 90s comics suck and move on to the next topic, but not back to the bins. I appreciate, I appreciate rather, because I can talk, I appreciate the depth and balance you three displayed in uh, covering Rob's Captain America. While not giving him a pass on some of the panels where the figures were disproportionate, you could still appreciate what he was trying to do. Uh, Scott brought out two good points regarding Liefeld's work. One, uh, I think he uh, was moved along too fast, uh, excuse me, moved along faster than he needed to be. His Wikipedia page says he was self-taught. If that's true, uh, then that may explain his lack of detail when it comes to anatomy. Having said that, this leads to Scott's second point. 
Despite his failings, his artwork was never boring. I always noticed a sense of energy coming off the pages he worked on. When he came on to New Mutants, there was a definite sense of excitement on that title. His X-Force number one sold a reported four million copies, which was then a record until Jim Lee's X-Men surpassed it a year later. This shows that I wasn't the only one who had an appreciation for Liefeld's work, even though no one wants to admit it nowadays. Uh, thanks for listening, and please keep the current format. I love it. Your loyal listener, Chris McGee. And I wonder what he means by current format, because this has pretty much always been the format of the show. I'm, I'm not sure what he means. Maybe he means the three-man dynamic, possibly? Maybe he means that, or maybe Chris didn't appreciate when we went off format and did our special Batman and Spider-Man issues. Ah, uh, that could be. Episodes, could rather. Be. Yeah. We have had a few uh, a few specials here and there. But, you know, for the most part, I, I feel like we've always pretty much had, you know, this format, you know, where we where we came to the table with, with random back issues. That was, you know, that was pretty much the, the, the mission statement, as it were, for the show. But, uh, Whatever he meant, and you know, Chris, feel feel free to uh, to write in and uh, and clarify what exactly you meant by that. But again, thank you for a very uh, thoughtful uh, piece of feedback. I really appreciate that, and uh, I appreciate the uh, uh, the positive statements about what I said. Because a lot of times I'll say things and then listen back to it later and think, should I sound like an idiot? You know, <laughs> but, uh, I think that every time, not you, <laughs> me. They're <laughs> <laughs> probably thinking about me too. That's fine. But uh, but no, I, I appreciate the feedback very much, and uh, like I say, I do apologize, guys, that we uh, were on hiatus so for you know for so for so very long. But uh, please uh, write into the show, let us know what you're thinking, and uh, more than anything, continue to send in those requests because uh, I really am bound determined to uh, you know as we get requests for different things, you know, if, if I've got it. Uh, you know, in my collection, then uh, I'll do my best to try to dig them out. So, yeah, I, I like that too. Actually, if we know people are looking for specific issues, then I would love to try and cover them. Exactly. Exactly. Well, are we ready to just go ahead and dig on into this thing? You think? I think I think that would be a great thing. <laughs> All right. Let me just bring up my notes here. All right, I think you guys are going to get a kick out of this because, and I cannot remember who it was, so forgive me whoever requested this, but uh, you know, my intent was to start into this review with those uh, immortal words, most often seen on a, on a Marvel comic, I believe, but those immortal words, because you demanded it. And I was so proud of myself, I went and I, and I dug through my collection and I pulled out a comic thinking, ah, here's something with, with these guys that, uh, that I can go ahead and I can review and I can make a listener happy because they requested something. And so I read the issue and I sat down and I, I wrote up a quick synopsis and I had some notes and I was all ready to go. And then something, I don't even know what it was, something occurred to me. Oh, I know what it was. I was looking through some old notes or something and it suddenly hit me that, I dug out this issue and read it because it has Red Ronin in it. And the request 
was actually for the Shogun Warriors. And in my mind, it was like, eh, you know, Red Ronin, Shogun Warriors, it's all the it looks, same damn thing. Well, it looks kind of like a Shogun Warrior. Right, yeah, well, and not at all. So, <laughs> so I screwed up. But I think you'll still get a kick out of this issue anyway. But I was trying, damn it, I was trying to meet that request. So I looked it up, and according to what little research I, I did and what I could find on the net, it looks like the Shogun Warriors were pretty much you know, contained to their own title from what I saw. It doesn't look like they ever guest starred in other books. Now, if somebody knows of somewhere where they did guest star somewhere else, let me know, and I'll see if I have any of those issues. Because I thought I had something with the Shogun Warriors in it, but I'll be damned if I could find it anywhere. Well, you're doing your synopsis. I'm going to try and look because I'm pretty sure they did. Oh, okay. But uh, I, I, when I realized that I'd messed up, I was both amused and and kind of upset with myself. I was like, damn, because I mean, this just shows my ignorance of the subject. I really know very little on this. Uh, you know, the 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 crossbreeding of of Japanese stuff over into you know, mainstream comics and all that. So, I mean, if someone had told me Red Ronin was one of the Shogun Warriors, I, I w- you know, I would have believed it and vice versa. I thought he was. So to find out he actually isn't, I was like, ah, crap. But, <laughs> oh, well. I hope you'll give me points for trying anyway. Anyway, we are going back to February 1978 for the second appearance of Red Ronin in Godzilla. King of the Monsters, number seven. This is written by uh, Doug Mensch. Herb Trimpey is the artist. Fred Kidda, or is it Kida? I'm not sure. Fred Kidda, K-I-D-A, who I don't recall ever hearing of before, is the inker. Glenn Simic is the letterer. Um, Janice Cohen letterer, or excuse me, colorist, rather. Uh, Archie Goodwin is the editor. And uh, the cover on this one is actually really cool. The uh, the proportions are a little wonky, but it's really neat. It's, uh, all these people, of course, are fleeing at Godzilla's feet. They're running away, and it looks like Godzilla is ripping apart uh, what looks to be like an oil refinery or something like that. You find out inside what it actually is that he's tearing up. But it was a little bit vague here what this structure was he's ripping apart. It's a really cool cover. And as he's tearing this up, he's kind of looking over his shoulder like, hey, what's that noise? And coming up fast behind him is Red Ronin flying through the air. And he's got this weird, like, it almost looks like a disc disc shooter, like you would see action figures these days sometimes have like a shield disc shooter type of thing. That's what it looks like. But instead of shooting a disc, it's actually got like a lightsaber blade coming out of it. It's actually pretty cool looking. He looks a lot like the Silver Samurai to me, actually. So, uh... The original cover price on this was 35 pennies, and the story is entitled Birth of a Warrior. So at a military installation in San Diego, Godzilla has just broken loose and is on the rampage. And apparently he'd been captured and brought here by S.H.I.E.L.D. in prior issues, uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. being led by Dum Dum Dugan. There's no explanations given, at least in this one issue, as to where Nick Fury is. So I don't know what the deal is with that. Everybody's in a panic because now the big lizard, he's just a few yards away from a field full of nuclear weapons. And they're all afraid that uh, if he gets there and starts raising hell, that he'll either set off the nukes 
or he'll cause an unscheduled launch that'll bring about World War III. Well, I'd just like to point out that they really needn't have worried because that's not how nuclear missiles work, like, at all. But for the sake of the story, you know, I, I can go along with the gag. Meanwhile, at Stark International, Jimmy Woo, who is a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and I just I think that's a kind of weird name, Jimmy Woo, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, he's pacing around and uh, he's lost in regretful thought about what kind of sounds like an attempted date rape to me, and that's not a joke, um, when the girl of his daydreams comes running around a corner and she's in a panic. Everybody's in a panic, this issue. And she's freaking out because they can't or she can't find Rob. Now, I don't know who this Rob person is supposed to be exactly. I don't know if it's your little brother or or what. But you know how a lot of the old school giant monster movies always seem to have that one like really annoying like Anakin Skywalker-esque type of kid hanging around? That's pretty much Rob's role in this story is to just be that annoying little bastard that you want to slap. So anyway, she can't find him, and uh, so they go running all around trying to see you know, where Rob's got off to when suddenly Dr. Tagaguchi's giant cybernetic project suddenly activates and it goes on a rampage. And there's a lot of rampaging in this issue too. I like this comic because it's got rampaging in it. Well, it doesn't take Jimmy and this girl, and her name is uh, Tamara, by the way. It doesn't take them very long to figure out where Rob is. He's actually asleep at the wheel of this giant robot, and he's wearing this very, like, Anakin Skywalker pod-racing helmet-looking gizmo on his head. And much like the A-plot with Godzilla, they're afraid that he's going to step on something important and cause a lot of big explosions. So Jimmy Woo, man of action, he uh, gets inside this giant mecha, and he stops it, like, just in time before it steps on something that was about to go kablooey. And in a and this scene that just makes me crack up is uh, so after he stops the machine and and he disengages uh, Rob from the machinery, he and Rob they exit through this little teeny tiny hole in the back of the robot's left heel. And I don't know what's so funny about that, but it it just the picture is absolutely hysterical. They're just walking out of this giant thing's you know the back of its foot. It just cracks me up that that's where the elevator drops them off. I guess. So S.H.I.E.L.D. calls, and there's like, uh, hey, you know, you think you could send over that big robot thing to battle this big lizard problem that we got? And they, you know, the doctor, uh, Dr. Uh, Tack, I'm going to call him, Dr. Tack, he wants to, but then there's this, like, little ball-headed, officious little shit guy that they, I don't even think they identify him by name in the story, so I don't know what, what purpose he serves other than he naysays the whole thing. He's like, nah, we haven't even tested this thing out yet. We don't know that it's going to work, so we, we can't do that. So Jimmy Woo, action ace, he says, you know what, screw that, and he heads back inside the machine and just commandeers it, or at least that's his intention. So back in San Diego... Uh, Dugan tries to hold back uh, Godzilla's rampage with this swanky new upgraded helicarrier that he has that I have to say, I think it looks more like an Imperial Troop transport from Kenner Toys than it looks like a helicarrier, but that's just me. And he's not having much success at all. You know, he's, he's able to kind of hold Godzilla back, but he's not stopping him. And the question on everybody's mind is, where the hell's that big robot? So the big robot, it turns out, it's still stuck on the launch pad. Jimmy can't figure out how to make it go. 
Now, thanks to comic book physics, the cyber helmet thingy that uh, Rob was wearing on his head when Jimmy rescued him, it turned out that there'd been some sort of malfunction whammy type of thing. And so the cyber helmet is actually bonded to Rob's brainwaves and only he can make it go. (laughs) You gotta love it. And so security at this installation is so bad that the little bastard is able to again, just bypass security, climb back inside the big robot, get back into the captain's chair, and he's going to take it out for another spin. This time, he has full control of both his own faculties and the control of the giant robot thing. And so he christens it Red Ronin and takes off into the sky. And uh, he makes great time, by the way, because a mere eight panels later, he arrives in San Diego. And that even includes this great scene where, uh, as he's learning how to fly Red Ronin, he just smashes right through this mountain that just happens to be in his flight path. And I just, I like to imagine that, like, as he smashes this mountain to rubble, that there's, like, this Cub Scout you know, troop that was out there trying to earn, like, their hiking merit badges or something, and he just, like, knocks them off a cliff. Anyway, Red Ronin, he slams into Godzilla as he's landing, drawing the beast's attention away from this destructive rampage and everything. And so, on the double splash page final panel surrounded by a field of primed and ready nuclear holocaust the battle of the ages is about to begin next issue godzilla versus red ronin and i got a kick out of this man <laughs> it's super cheesy it's um but you know it was, it was a lot of fun in just that big dumb comics kind of way you know it that's there's not a whole lot of logic to this either you know the the internal structure of it's you know doesn't hold up to to very close examination but if you just want to see big things stepping on little things and lots of people running and screaming and you know that sort of then it was for that it was fun um a couple of things of note is that uh red ronin is actually named in this issue so the prior issue to this number six is actually Red Ronin's first appearance, but he's not named in that story. Um, Rob names him uh, Red Ronin in this. Um, now, right off the bat, one of the things I wonder, because I, you know the, the, the opening splash page is Godzilla on the rampage, and, and the caption even says that he just escaped from the mi- military installation where they had kept him in an enormous escape-proof cage. And... You turn the page, and there's a very the second panel is this guy running up and, and basically chewing out Dum Dum Dugan like, "What the hell? Your cage wasn't worth crap." You know, the, this thing's loose and it's on the rampage, and Dum Dum's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep your shirt on. We're working on it." And the guy points behind him to this field. It's literally a field full of nuclear weapons that he says are basically primed and ready to go, and, and they're aimed at the enemy. So it makes it sound like the least little thing is going to set them off and, and make them attack the enemy and bring about World War III. And I'm thinking, is this really the best place for them to have jo- brought a giant monster to? It, it just seems like that just wasn't a really good decision on Shield's part. Um, I failed to make note of what page it was, but I got a kick out of um, 
Jimmy Woo in one part. Oh, it's the part where he goes to run into Red Ronin to uh, to try to fly it to San Diego to battle Godzilla. Um, his girlfriend says something like, oh, be careful or something. And he's like, oh, I wish I could find it here because it was absolutely hysterical. Let me see if I can find it real quick. He just has the goofiest quote. Where is it? Oh, she goes, wait, Jimmy, where are you? And he says, if there are any bugs in the robot systems, I'll take uh, both the responsibility and the risk. Wish me luck, as the Italian stallion said. I'm going <laughs> to need it. I was like, what? <laughs> Oh, well, this is 1977, and Rocky came out in 76. So this is true. Being just, timely at the time. Yeah. Just goofy, though. Um, is it my imagination, or... All right, let me read you this line. All right, page 15, panel 1. You've got the shield helicarrier. Again, looks more like the Imperial uh, troop transport to me. It's up in the sky. It's shooting missiles at uh, Godzilla that are having very little effect. And Dum Dum Dugan is talking to the pilot. And he says, all right, Howards. He says, time to see if this baby puts out any better than the old one. And I'm like, wait a minute. It puts out to me. It has a sexual connotation. <laughs> does, does it not have the same effect? You know, was it not the same thing back? It just seems like kind of a, a strange thing to say in arguably a, a child's medium, but I, I don't think that that's the link that they were trying to make though. I, I don't think that's the point they were going for. <laughs> I think they may, it may have just been worded, you know, kind of clumsily. Page, uh, you know, I'm not, I, and I know I've beat this to death, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor the point here. Herb Trimpey, not my favorite artist. However, it's got to be said, you know, I, I like to give credit when credit's due. Page 16, the last panel on that page, is awesome. It really is a beautiful piece of art. It's uh, Dum Dum. He knows he's outgunned. He knows he can't stop Godzilla, but he's he's trying his level best to at least hold it back until help can arrive. And so he orders basically the entire arsenal uh, of the shield helicarrier to dump its its load of what he calls pulsar torpedoes. So there's a great shot of him ordering the the torpedoes launched. There's a, a panel of them being launched, and then the bottom panel of the page, which takes up about a third of the page, is just a great reaction uh, shot of Godzilla being hit by the torpedoes and and basically screaming in pain. And it's a really really nice piece of art. I I really enjoyed. It. I thought it was very very nice. That is a really nice shot. And yeah. Also, I like the uh, the double splash at the end. I like that page. Yes, yeah, that was my other one for uh, for really nice art. I thought that the, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. The the double splash at the end is uh, you know I'll admit it. It's it's poster worthy. It's really nice because you know, you've got these two giants, you know, literally giants facing off with each other. I really thought that that was neat. Although uh, Godzilla does have a big old beer belly on him, which is kind of funny. <laughs> And uh, really, the only other thing I had on this, it wasn't necessarily... Oh, actually, I have two other things real quick. Not necessarily story-related at all, but also in the issue, there's the uh, the classic, what I like to call a classic anyway. It's a classic pizzazz ad with all of the Marvel heroes. You know, you got Spider-Man and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and Doctor Strange and Thor and Daredevil and all these different guys. 
rushing at an issue of pizzazz that Stan Lee is holding up. And I got to say, he looks more like the corporate uh, symbol for brawny paper towels than he does <laughs> for Stan Lee. It's really, I love him in his lumberjack outfit here. He, he, but he could button hysteric. a few of those buttons on his shirt, I think. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, oh, I don't need to see that, Stan. Button that shit up. Um, and then you've got the classic, the classic Hostess Fruit Pie ad, Thor in the Dingling family. This is basically Thor versus Space Rednecks. And, oh, my God, this is this is the stupidest thing you'll ever read. It actually does lower your IQ to read that. But, it, <laughs> again, it's hysterical. And then you've got uh, Mr. Olympus or wherever this dude is on the inside back cover with his junk hanging out. I do not need to be looking at that. And that's pretty much Godzilla number number seven. Now, did you read this one or do you remember this one? I had read this back when it was a relatively new book, so 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen it since until you told me you were going to do this one. Uh, story-wise... I agree with everything you said. It's silly. It's ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. But this is the kind of books that I loved in the Bronze Age. This is, you know, I just, you know, you 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 just basically just reading it for fun. You're not trying to think about it too hard, and and it 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 hits all the beats that you need. It it you know builds up a little. Uh, personal story where you you know you're dealing with these background characters and it leads you up to this confrontation at the end that makes you look forward to reading the next issue and i have no memory at all of the next issue and whether or not it held up to you know the the promise that it starts off with here but what i what i also like about it is it's what they did with the godzilla series all along for whatever it was 25 issues i think it was out uh, they never made Godzilla the main character. It was always the background characters and how they were dealing with Godzilla. Uh, and, and they became the focus of the book. And Godzilla was more of just a background character that they were dealing with. Uh, as far as the artwork goes, you know, you and I do differ in that I really do like Herb Trimpey's work. But uh, I'm not familiar with uh, Fred Keita uh, other than this issue. Uh, but I do not like, as we were talking about before, I don't like his inking in this. He seemed to have a really, really heavy hand. Uh, the lines are very, very thick. There's no subtlety to it at all. Uh, it, it's very dark. Uh, and, and, and it, it, it took, like I said, it took away any subtlety at all from the artwork. Uh, I, I just don't like what he did with Trimpy's work at all. I'm sure this isn't Trimpy's best work, but. He he wasn't given any help by this anchor, uh, with the exception of a few panels. Uh, that that one page you pointed out with uh, Godzilla getting hit by the uh, the bombs, the shot of Dum Dum Dugan at the top right panel. Uh, it's actually he he had a really heavy hand in that, but just because of the way it lays out, it actually you know it, it was used to good effect in that particular panel. I thought. But other than that, I, I don't like the heavy hand at all. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I'm really not familiar with this guy's... Uh, I, I didn't recognize the name, and I, I'm not familiar with his work at all. Um, but I thought that the inking looked heavier 
than what I was used to. I mean, did did um, did Trimpy have a, a regular artist who was you know a regular inker that he was teamed with more than than anyone else or anything like that? Because he he always seemed to me like he had you know a particular style, a particular look to his stuff, but I can never remember if if he was regularly teamed up. You know, because like say like John Byrne for example, he's got you know two or three inkers that he would be regularly teamed up with. Did did Trimpy mm-hmm. have somebody like that? Not that I'm specifically aware of off the top of my head. I mean, Trimpy's uh, prime work, as far as I was concerned, was on the Hulk. Right. Uh, you know, for for a good long time, you know, until Sal Buscema came in and became the regular guy. Uh, and I'm just kind of trying to look now uh, while while we're talking to see if uh, if I could see who inked any of his work with the Hulk back then. It wasn't. And, uh, uh, it wasn't. Uh, um, oh, uh, Coletta, was it? I'm not sure. I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Fred Keita though. I don't think, yeah, I'm just looking at an issue of the Hulk right now. And let's see. Jack Abel was the anchor. And oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, okay. That I think he may have done a lot of work with, with Trimpy, but I can't say that for absolute certain. Um, but I like his work on the Hulk so much more than I like this. Uh, he, he definitely had a very distinctive style. His renderings of faces was... You know, it kind of stood out, and uh, but but it had a certain appeal to it that I think the heavy inking style, la- you know, takes away from it. Right, and and it, it it's almost like I'm, I'm looking at uh, page eleven uh, down at the bottom right corner. There's a I, I don't even know. I'm not even sure who it is that's talking to Jimmy Wu. Uh, it, it's almost like the heavy inking takes away the fine details of the face, and it makes it look too cartoony. The same thing with you know just the general artwork on a whole. I think it makes it come out too cartoony. Yeah. Was this? I'm trying to remember when was the the Godzilla cartoon on the air? Do you remember? I would say it was before this. It was before. So I wonder if it has That's any the, with, influence with on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I don't know for certain, but I'm pretty sure that was before this. So I wonder if that would have any any bearing on you know any influence on this or anything like that. Because I know that they're not really, um, at least to my you know, you know. Granted, I only have. Let's see. This ran what twenty four issues, I think. Something. And I think I. I think I have thirteen. So I have basically half the series. Of those issues I have, I've probably only ever actually read, you know, two or three of them. So I'm hardly an expert on this. But it seems to me, if I remember properly, that they didn't really um, acknowledge Godzilla's prior existence, if you know what I mean. They didn't, I don't remember them referencing the films. They may have used some of the other monsters, but... You know, it wasn't a matter of them specifically saying, oh, you know, well, this is that guy that attacked God, you know, that attacked Tokyo back in the fifth. I don't remember that. It seemed to me like they were treating him like he was a brand new thing that just popped up, kind of like the American film, you know, the American Godzilla. And uh, and they integrated him into the Marvel Universe with Dumb 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 Dumb
Uh, I think the Fantastic Four was in it at one point, and the yep. Avengers might have been in it at one point. Yep. And I just punched up on IMDb Godzuki, and it says 1978, so it would be a year after this. Oh, okay. Hmm. I, I got a kick out of it, though. I, I know that the, that there was a um, uh, Godzilla, uh, what do you call it, a, uh, one of those essentials. Now, I don't know how... How essential it is, but I know that there was one, a, a Godzilla Essentials. So I, I'm sure that this stuff is probably reprinted in there if you know someone wanted to check it out on the cheap. Actually, I'd be very curious to see how this would look in black and white. I bet it actually looks pretty neat in black and white. I think that would actually bring the heavy lines up a, a, a level. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised there is an Essential on it because I would have thought that there might be uh, licensing problems with getting... You know the the rights to print Godzilla comics once they lost the right to publish them as the new books, right? But I guess they managed to work out a deal. I mean that's the problem with you know the old Micronauts issues and ROM and you know right. other things. Yeah, I'm not sure how things. they're able to do that. Um, yeah, really, I don't know how that whole thing worked out because now that you say that, that's true. But uh, yeah, they're, I know it was out there. May, they may not have the the rights to um, reprint it though, you know, to to go back and do subsequent printings. Because if I'm not mistaken, I think that the uh, the essential for that, I'm not sure it's still in print. I know that there's one of them that they did that's now hard to find and kind of valuable it may be the godzilla one because maybe they they're not allowed to reprint it i i don't know i'm kind of talking out of my ass here i'm not exactly sure of my facts well right now i know idw's publishing godzilla books so i would be surprised if marvel was allowed to publish you know while another company had their rights right so I, I doubt that they're yeah. coming out with it new. If if you if somebody's finding this, it's probably something that's been on the bookstore shelf for a while. Right. Well, that's all I got on this one. Did you have any uh have anything else on that one? No, that's about it. I mean it's a pretty simple story and I like the way it leaves off. That's uh I may have to pull the next issue and check it out. Yeah, I'm curious how it uh, how it ends. Now, what's what's funny was my my initial inclination was to grab number six because that was the first issue with uh, with Red Ronin. You know, it's his first appearance and everything. But it turns out that according to my database, anyway, that's an issue that's actually in my red stuff. You know, that's that's actually filed away as as having been read at some point. I certainly don't remember it. So, <laughs> but yeah, I am curious now. You know how how you know how epic was this battle if if you know truly there was a battle because you know a lot of times they they'd kind of bait and switch you on these type of things you know it's set up looking like oh they're really going to throw down and then you know two panels into the next issue you know something happens you know Robbie runs out on the field crying don't kill him Godzilla or some <laughs> stupid thing and you know so they don't actually fight so you know it may well be I couldn't tell yeah. you offhand those little singing twins show up or something I don't know. <laughs> Uh, we get, what the Earth Destructive Directive uh, could probably tell us. Yes. Oh, yeah, I wish I thought of that ahead of time. I could have could invited Luke in as a, as an expert witness on this whole thing. I wonder if he uh, I wonder if he's ever read these uh, these old Godzilla comics. Write in and let us know, Luke. I know you listen to the show, so write in and, and give us your opinion on uh, the Marvel Godzilla series. If you have any uh, any 
uh, experience with it, any knowledge of it. I'd Actually, like to I, I would enjoy if Luke would do kind of what you do with the Star Wars or, or Star Trek and kind of each, each episode throw in a little uh, comic book adaptation that he touches on. I wish he would, too, because I, I have one issue of the... Uh, I, I couldn't tell you which series, because I know there have been multiple series and miniseries and all kinds of different things, but at some point in Dark Horse's publishing history on Godzilla, there was a, a storyline where Godzilla was bouncing around through time. And in this one story, um, he actually shows up at the sinking of the Titanic. Or maybe it's just the the, the maiden voyage of the Titanic, I, I forget. But he, he pops up anyway, because I can remember a shot of the Titanic and like the passengers looking and, and seeing Godzilla and freaking out. And I always thought that was really cool. And of course I bought it for the Titanic, not for Godzilla, you know, because just because, you know, whenever I find out that, you know, there's certain, there's certain like sub genres of comics that I'll collect, you know, for the content, you know, be it, you know, something Disney related or Titanic or something like that. So that's actually one of the comics that's in my like Titanic sub genre collection. But uh, as I recall, it was interesting. It was one of those kind of things. I always wondered where the story went, but I, I never followed it. I couldn't yeah, even I, tell I you how. I have no familiarity with that one. Yeah, I, I couldn't even tell you how. I mean, it, it's been a long time, so I, I'm not even sure what what decade we're talking here. I'm thinking it was like mid to late 90s, but I honestly don't remember. It's been a while. The cover was beautiful, though. I, I, it was a famous artist, and now it's, now it's killing me who it was. Art Adams, maybe? I forget. Really nice cover, though. But anyway, that's enough about Godzilla. Let's talk about what you got. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with a technicality before I do it, though, just because uh, when, when I've been t- talking for more than a moment or two and you're on hold, I'm hearing your fan really heavy. So oh, are you? Move your, your mic a little further away from it. I tell you, what, I'll just go ahead and click it right off. All right. Well, I don't mean to make you you sweat down there. I no, just, that's all uh, right. It's it's actually nice and cool in here at the moment, so that'll work. All right. Well, I brought this to this episode, James Bond, Serpent's Tooth, Book One, which is, is that a better? dark. Yeah, much better. All right. Uh, it's a dark horse comic with a cover date of July of 1992. The cover price was four dollars and ninety five cents. The book has a painted cover, which has a montage of images on it that appear to simulate a James Bond movie poster to some extent. Uh, the Bond image on the cover looks to me to be kind of an amalgam of Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton. Not clearly either one of them, but kind of a combination of the two. Uh, it pre- predates Goldeneye by three years, so I, I don't think there's any Pierce Brosnan in there. Uh, the story is by Doug Mensch, who just wrote the uh, Godzilla story that you just read. And uh, the art and the cover are by Paul Gulesi. The story opens seven years before the main story uh, in the jung- jungles of Peru, where we see a woman frantically running and saying, Chupa. There appears to be some sort of flying saucer following her, and I'm not really sure exactly what that gets to. Uh, two mysterious men with long white hair and gowns come at her from opposite sides, and she collapses to the ground. You then cut to London six years before our main story, where we see a scientist leaving his lab. In the street, someone uses the tip of an umbrella to 
inject him with some type of drug, and he's put into a car. As the car leaves, we see a newspaper headline that says, Fifth Scientist Missing. Then we cut to uh, water underneath the Arctic ice five years before our main story. We see a British submarine getting attacked and sending an SOS message. Men at a nearby base fear that it's a false alarm, and while they discuss it, they're attacked and killed. The sub is towed away and missiles are removed from it. And then the next page of the book is a title page, which I believe is meant to simulate the opening credits of a James Bond movie. Following that page, we join Bond. He's in a ski cabin in Switzerland in the present day. He's there with a blonde in a teddy, and he's asking for his drink to be shaken and not stirred. She draws a bead on him with a pistol, stating that she that he killed her husband. He assures her that it was self-defense, and as he's doing so, he reaches for the fireplace poker, which he uses to knock the pistol from her hand. She quickly kicks him in the face and grabs the gun again. He charges at her quickly and manages to avoid being shot as they both go crashing through a glass door or window of the cabin and land in the snow, where they continue to fight hand to hand. He ultimately knocks her out and returns with her to the cabin and pours himself a drink. Miss Moneypenny calls him on the phone and puts him on with M. And as Bond is speaking with M, the woman revives and grabs that same fireplace poker that Bond had used, but then... Off panel, Bond knocks her out again while M is waiting for him. The next scene is at M's office where Bond goes to meet with M, and he, as he does in the movies all the time, flirts with Money Penny before going in to see M. He then goes in and is given his assignment, which includes following up on an assignment that 009 had been working on, but 009 went missing in Peru. And at the time, he was working on trying to find the missing missiles from the submarine that we saw in the pre-title sequence. Bond goes to Lima, Peru, where he's picked up by his contact's assistant. And as she drives him away, they're attacked by people in another car. Ultimately, the car that Bond is in jumps the span of an opening drawbridge. But the car that's chasing them doesn't quite make it. And it shears off the top of the car. And it appears like it's a, kind of a bloody mess. Bond learns that 009 was investigating a genetic research lab, research lab called Paradiso Industries Limited, and it's run by a strange American known as Indigo. It seems that Indigo has done some genetic experimentation on himself and has a snake-like albino appearance. Bond meets with him in a casino where he be where he beats on he beats Indigo in baccarat, and then introduces himself as Derek Pentecost, a biogeneticist who came to Peru hoping that Indigo was hiring. Bond, come, Bond is hired by Indigo and comes to the lab the following morning and is greeted by one of the mysterious men from the opening sequence who introduces himself as Kane. The second man comes and Bond assumes that this gentleman's name is Abel. He asks if they're twins or if they're clones, but they don't respond. He's introduced to their employee indoctrination, which appears to consist of a deprivation chamber where he's repeatedly given the message that he will work for Indigo in a subdued, dignified atmosphere of total obedience. When he's let out, a man is going to inject him with some sort of solution, and Bond escapes. Indigo identifies him as an imposter and directs that he be captured. Bond battles his way free and finds a lab with what appear to be dinosaur bones. 
He uses a long bone as a weapon and has a shootout with Cain and Abel, in which it's almost impossible to imagine that no one was hit because it looks like they're about three feet from each other. He jumps through a closed window and climbs down to street level, where he meets up with the girl who f- drove him when he first went to Peru, and she drives him away from the lab. We see a shadowed face, which I'm assuming is Indigo, but I'm not quite certain. He complains that this is the second of Her Majesty's Secret Service agents and that they're starting to get too close. He directs the twins to pack everything because they're moving their operation to New Eden. And the book ends on a cliffhanger where they show a dinosaur in a cage. And I'm imagining that it's a raptor that we're seeing. And that's where this issue ends. And uh, this is the first time I read this. And actually, it's the first comic adaptation of James Bond that I've ever read other than... uh, you know, uh, an actual adaptation of a film. It's the first original adaptation or first licensed adaptation of Bond that I read. And it was pretty good. I thought it did a good job of simulating the feel of feel and pacing of a movie. Uh, I thought the audio was really, really nice uh, for the most part. And uh, just just an enjoyable story. It's not... I don't have an overly complicated review of this one. Did you get a chance to look this one over, Scott? I was looking it over as you were giving your synopsis. I, I have not read it, um, so I mean, my my, uh, you know, any opinions I would have would be based just solely on you know the artwork and and your synopsis. It looks very interesting. I mean, it does look like it's a, you know I like Doug Mensch a lot as a writer, so it looks like the story would be very, um, you know, it looks interesting. Um, it looks. It's kind of odd because it both looks very much like um, a classic Bond adventure, but at the same rate with the UFO at the beginning, with the one guy that looks like some sort of lizard man or something, and then you know the thing with the with the dinosaur at the end kind of makes it feel like this is almost like the Crystal Skull of James Bond adventures. You know what I mean? Um, but I'd still be very curious to read it because, you know, I, I like a good Bond story and everything, but really the only thing I can offer on this is that it's hard for me now to take my mind back to when I was a kid and try to remember what it was I used to really like about Paul Gillespie because I, I have to be perfectly honest, I don't dig his art anymore. I used to. I used to really think he was awesome. And it's not like he's terrible, don't get me wrong. It's not like I look at this and just go, ugh. But it just doesn't do it for me like it used to. Somewhere along the line, I just, I, I don't know if he changed or my taste changed. But I, I know the first time I, I ever saw something of his that I, I, it struck me that I was like, wow, I really don't like this was he did a uh, a three-issue, at least I think it was three issues, um, prestige format um, Batman book called um, Outcasts that I really disliked. And I used to really like his Batman, so I don't know, but this this does look interesting. I like that uh, that it still seems to maintain the same you know level of sex and violence that you come to expect from like a James Bond picture. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. And that shot of the bad guys going off the road and slamming into whatever that is that just shears off the top of the car and just makes paste out of them is 
both awesome and extremely nasty at the same rate. That's just gruesome right there. Yeah, especially with the uh, the blood at the back that you see. Yeah. It's just like, you know, it just smears these guys. That's just gross. But it's gross and cool at the same time. But uh, that's really all I've got. I, I would be very, very curious of your opinion of the Mike Grell series that he did back... Gosh, I can't even remember what year that was. That's that's got to be. I'm thinking that's probably late '80s, early '90s. I'm thinking, but he did a. Uh, I think it was a three issue. Again, it was a prestige format title. I can't even remember what publisher it was for. Maybe Eclipse. I forget. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll look up and I'll, I'll get more details to pass on to you if you're ever interested in taking a look at it. But oh, it was Grell's, like Grell's work. Yeah, so Grell's awesome. And it was some of his best, you know, as far as the artwork anyway, it was some of his best stuff. I don't really remember much about the story. I mean, I don't remember disliking it, so I'm, I'm sure I dug it. It seemed to me like the third issue, if I remember properly, I think the third issue of that took forever to come out. And when it finally did, it was kind of like, eh. You know, it's like the art was really good, mm. but it was kind of like a lackluster resolution to the whole thing, if I remember. But again, it's one of those things I'd like to dig out and, and take a look at. As a matter of fact, I was going to kind of pitch the idea to uh, to Andy that after we do the second part of our Bond film, whatever you call it, retrospective or whatever, maybe uh, if, if any of the guys would be interested in getting together and doing uh, something to do with Bond um, in comics or maybe Bond in other media, because I know that there's been like animated stuff. I mean, I don't know any of it, but I know there has been stuff. I know they stuff. James Bond Jr. as an animated thing. Yeah. I, I haven't heard good things about that, but at the same rate, some of the talent that worked on that was actually, um, you know, uh, again, I'm drawing a blank at the moment as to any names, but I remember there was a write-up in, I think it was in Back Issue Magazine not long ago, talking briefly about that series, and it was kind of interesting, just some of the names that were attached to it, and none of them were particularly proud of the work, but at the same rate, just, you know, again, some of the names that were attached were like, wow, really, they worked on that, so... Mm. Now, uh, I mean, just just to get back on the on this issue, uh-huh. uh, I I mean, I'm not overly familiar with Galassi's work. I think uh, he he probably did the bulk of his work during the time when I wasn't collecting comics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the late '80s, early '90s. Exactly. And, uh, yes. yeah. So I'm not that familiar with it, but I really liked it in this book. I thought it was clean, and I thought that if I saw this particular issue with no word balloons, I'd still be able to follow the story, which I think says a lot for the, you know, for his storytelling ability. So I, I would give it high marks on the artwork. Now, have you read the entire series? No, I haven't. I, 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 I basically, you know, my, you know, my, my thing is Marvel mostly. Right. Uh, so when, when I get when I draw the indie book for our uh, show, I usually have to search something out. Right. <laughs> so I, I I found this in my in my stack of stuff and decided it's time to read it. And I was happy I did though. I liked it, and I, I'm going to read this two more issues to it, and I'm definitely going to read them. Uh, you know, my concern is going to be that it that the end that it's going to end with a little bit of a letdown. Uh, hopefully that's not the case. But uh, I you know I will definitely finish it off now. 
basically, I feel that way for both books that we read. I, I also want to read the second half of that Godzilla story. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I do too. Now I want to. I want to see how it all shakes out. Well, that's pretty much all I got for this time. You got any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, <laughs> sometimes it's uh, be careful what you wish for because uh, you know it's, it's funny. I. I uh, I got into, or I have an, an attachment to the characters of Captain Marvel and Warlock, which you probably don't because you're not into the cosmic stuff so much. But my attachment to those characters was really based on when I first started reading comics, Jim Starlin was doing both of them. Uh, and, and he had kind of epic runs on both. That's when he introduced the character of Thanos. And just some, he put out some really great stuff. So I went back and decided, you know, I really like the character of Captain Marvel, but I never read most of his backstory. So I sat and I read like the 30-something issues leading up to Starlin's run, and there is some crap in there that <laughs> just, you wouldn't believe how bad some of it is. Uh, in fact, one, one issue in particular, I think, I, I thought of you and I thought it would actually upset you. Because uh, it, it's Wayne Boring, who I know is somebody who you like a lot. Yeah. And it is some of the worst artwork that you can imagine. It must be at the very end of his time when he had nothing left. But uh, it, it's kind of sad. Uh, and and it just, they just, they had no idea where to go with this character. Uh, you know, it started, like, the, the, the themes of the book changed from month to month. And, and just the character changed. He had no personality for most of it. Just, some terrible, terrible stuff. You've actually you've made me very. I had no idea that Wayne Boring ever did anything for Marvel. So that that actually interests me, just out of pure curiosity, to see what that might have been like. I'll get but, that uh, over to you, but I, but I think you will be sad when you see it. What 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 I've ever read of Captain Marvel beyond the death of Captain Marvel um, failed to strike a chord with me. I, I mean, Did you ever read the Starlin stuff? I think I've read bits and pieces of it, but again, it just it never really grabbed me. And I wanted to like it because for a time, um, Pat Broderick worked on Captain Marvel, and I I actually consider myself a Pat Broderick fan. I really like his stuff, and even that failed to connect with me. I liked the art, but the the it was just something about. The stories I thought were very bland, and the character just—I don't know. There was something about him that he just—he didn't have a distinct. Um, well, I, for one, I didn't—I never thought he had much of a personality, but also he didn't have a, a distinct enough um, identity. You know what I mean? Like everything with mm -hmm. that character felt like I've seen this before. I've been here before. You know what I mean? The whole. You know, switching from a boy to a to a man, the whole you know, just well, everything about Thomas him. Playing with the Shazam Captain Marvel idea, right? No, no question about it that that's what he had in mind, right? But, uh, you, you you need you need to read the Jim Starlin stuff if you're gonna if you're gonna give it a shot, uh, and you need to kind of find the reading order for it. In fact, they they didn't they published them as a trade. So you could find the reading order even from that because he jumped around a little bit. He did an issue, a couple of issues of Iron Man. Uh, he did a uh, Marvel feature, the last two issues with the thing. And there's an issue, I think it's Thing and Iron Man, uh, which have the Blood Brothers in it. 
Right. And, and he was kind of building up there. And then he, he, he moved from that to Captain Marvel and took the storyline that he was working on with him. So you kind of have to read it in order to, to follow it. But it's, you know, he, he took a character with no personality at all and really no direction at all and just kind of gave him just, you know, an epic cosmic run. Uh, and he did the same thing with, with Adam Warlock. And uh, I'll save my, my thoughts on his prior issues for some other time. But, uh, you know, the, the, the Captain Marvel prior issues, like I said, were just terribly disappointing. Now, was it you that I was talking about um, Blood and Thunder with not long ago? Yes, yes, we were talking about that. I think uh, last episode we talked. We we went off on a, a Thor tangent, and uh, that's right. And that, that's right. That led us over to Warlock. Yeah. At some point, you know, <laughs> with, with all apologies to uh, to Chris McGee, you know, I, at some point I would like to do um, specials. You know where we would look at a, a particular like storyline, or um, you know, like you were saying, like you know, following the development of um, you know Starlin's little mini universe that he was doing with the cosmic stuff. That sort, of, I would love to do stuff like that. I think that could be a lot of fun. It would, you know, it involve a bit of homework, so it'd be something that we could only do occasionally. But I, I think you know, specials like that would be warranted, especially when. You know, we'd want to focus on stuff that maybe would be a little less, uh, lesser known or even unknown. Because I don't think I've ever heard anybody mention Blood and Thunder. It's one of those things I'm sure people look at and go, "Oh God, it's '90s. I could give a crap." But you know, forsaking the art, I, I found that that was actually a pretty enjoyable storyline, as I recall. But uh, you know, again, it would be something I'd have to sit down and, and re-examine because that's probably been a good 20 years since I've read it. But but uh, I tell you what, if you if you know of a reading order for that stuff, like you were saying, you know, bounce it my way because now that I've really gotten into the whole like annihilation thing and all that, I'd be very curious now to go back and get more of the backstory because I know I have some of those earliest issues of Iron Man where uh, where Thanos first appeared and all that, and I've I've just never read them. I've got them, I just have never gotten around to to reading them. But yeah, I, I mean that is giving you the uh, the origin of most of the characters that you're working with in that annihilation because you're dealing with well Captain Marvel obviously and Thanos, mm-hmm. but uh, you know you also have Drax the Destroyer is Moon Dragon yeah issues Moon Dragon is introduced in those issues so you know there's, there's a lot of the uh, the groundwork that uh, Abnett and Landing worked with you know comes from that Stalin work right and and. I, I, I just I thought it was really really well done, and and some of the warlock work that that Stalin did, uh, and there was there was a whole article or a, a cover story in uh, Back Issue magazine on that uh, because he he went you know a lot of there was a lot of uh, you know political and uh, you know religious and different type of commentary like that that he went into in the warlock series excuse me that uh, you know. It, it it's kind of amusing to read it. I mean, it's very heavy-handed in some of it, but it's but it's very <laughs> well done as well. Cool. Well, I think we got this one in the can. What do you think? I think we're good. All right, well, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. 
You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.